Hello and welcome to this week's Bosscast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting and I'm joined by Jane Hollingshead, who's Managing Director of People, Culture and Customer Experience for Canary Wharf Group. Jane, fantastic to see you. Unfortunately, my opening joke of you going from doing CPOs as a corporate lawyer to being the chief people officer has been slightly shredded by the fact that you're managing director for people, culture and customer experience, not CPO. But welcome nonetheless. Fantastic to see you. How long has it been now at Canary Wharf? It's not even nine months. It's eight months. And I'm, I'm really sorry to take the wind out of your sails with the wrong title. I'll see what I can do to change it. It's fine. It's fine. I don't expect people's titles to be <laughs> formed solely for the purposes of giving me a humorous intro, although it does often help. But thank you nonetheless for coming along. Why don't we start with some of your journey to Canary Wolf, which began, well, I suppose it began really at Adelshaw Goddard and in, in your role there for many years. And you'll be known to many people in the sector for your position as head of real estate for the legal practice. How did you go from, well, I'm not sure you were managing CPOs particularly, but you were doing far more interesting stuff than that. But how have you gone from that world into a very people-focused client-side role, which is very different from the sorts of things that most corporate lawyers would end up going to do? I guess the common link's real estate, isn't it? So if you think about when we first met each other, which was probably... Centuries ago. Yeah, a long time ago. I think what I always really, really loved about the legal profession were the clients. And I really loved the sort of whole social aspect, the people aspect of what real estate offered. I guess for me at the moment, in terms of when I decided it was probably time to move on, so I, re- I remember reading in an article somewhere at legal press that less than 10% of partners in the city were aged over 50. And I decided that it was probably a good wake-up moment to think about what I wanted to do next. Mm. And I decided that, you know, whilst it was a fantastic environment being at a law firm, there was so much more, so much more that I think was on offer. I didn't want to do the second half of my career what I'd done for the first half of my career. So... It was a natural thing to go client side and to start doing the stuff that I like doing, but more integrated with the clients. Mm. And what had you learned through those years at Adelshaws? What had the legal profession taught you? Because many people would look at professional services and think, actually, these guys are often one step ahead when it comes to many of the things that we'll talk about today. Yeah, it's true. Uh, on the diversity, the progressive thinking side, because they have to be. And, you know, you think about very simple terms like gender, right? There's a significant greater number of senior female execs in professional services than there are in pure real estate and investment, right? Yeah, it's true, actually. I mean, I, th- I think one of the reasons why I ended up doing more in pure real estate around EOD and I was because of what I'd seen when I was in the legal profession. And I think that the legal profession is probably more meritocratic. You know, I think people were genuinely promoted based on ability. Mm. And that was your own trajectory into law was just that, wasn't it? You didn't come from a traditional background. No, not at all. I came from a single parent family in Liverpool, got a scholarship to go to a, a school and I remember being told very early on when I was at university that if I wanted to get a job in the legal profession, then um, the one thing that I needed to do was change my accent. And then instead of investing in a new suit for work, I should invest in elocution lessons because no one was going to 
pay you to work in the city with a Scouse accent. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, so, speaking so, as someone that's also changed their accent over the last 20 years, I can sympathise a little bit. So, yes, that aspect of EG and I was always, you know, particularly important to me. And also, you know, I was, you know, not in a minority, but there were less women in the league profession at the time that I was there. Mm. So it was always kind of pretty high up on my agenda. So after leaving Adershaw Goddard, you worked for a couple of years with British Land, didn't you? And were quite heavily involved there with a number of their different projects. Uh, it was quite mixed. So the decision that I took when I left private practice was that I had a criteria that I wanted to work with clients who I respected. I wanted to learn something or to give something back and I wanted to have fun. And I think one of the things that was really useful and actually something that I'd highly encourage is I had a very well-established network so that once I left private practice and went into sort of running my own business, there was a strong network. And in fact, Andy, if you remember, I think you were the first person that offered me an unpaid position back in the early days. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you probably have a lot to apologise to the real estate industry for. Oh, it's but. fine. Well, you know, <laughs> apology, ap- apology will be, be, be offered up. But, <laughs> but yeah, so I, I, I ended up sort of with a roster of clients, but all within real estate, you know, British Land, Knight Frank, Savills. But at the same time, I, I also was quite keen to build the non-exec roles. Um, mm. So I took on some non-exec roles I, I, mean, I mean, do people need to move around more? We had Jonathan Seal boss of regal london on a couple of months back he came again another lawyer worked in private equity now in real estate development and sales again totally different landscape and 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 lots of people now as the market particularly on the institutional side has become a lot more operational you've got people coming from hugely different backgrounds and running businesses having to get their hands having to roll up their sleeves and run things in a you know in a real messy colorful noisy fun chaotic way which is in many cases at odds with the you know the insular safe ivory tower of professional services yeah i i think it's also it's, i'm not sure i'd necessarily 100 agree with you but i, I think the, there's a point in there around some of the things that we might talk about later in terms of ed and i which is bringing a different perspective and having a different opinion and having a different viewpoint. And I think that real estate is an industry when you look back maybe 10 years or, or not even as long ago as that, that career trajectories tend to be really linear, don't they? And people would start off as one thing, you know, they might, you know, qualify as a surveyor and then they might go in-house, but you didn't get that real peripatetic movement around different sectors of the industry. And, you know, Going back to, you know, your, your question about sort of how I ended up going from law into client side, there's very, very few lawyers that will move into industry and then move into different roles. And I think that there should be a lot more of that because I think it brings strength and resilience to the industry more broadly. You know, and that's kind of about the diversity too. It's just a diversity of perspective and it's a cognitive diversity. Mm-hmm. And what were some of the things that you battled against early doors in terms of the financial hardship and having, you know, what to use your words, a Scouse accent? <laughs> but let's, well, let's face it, but there's, there's plenty of London real estate agents that, that I know and that we all know that have never left London, right? That, that, that don't know the difference between Liverpool and Manchester. I think it's like lots of people that don't, necessarily feel they fit from day one you know 
I think you question a bit why you're there. You know, you feel there's a sense of of, of imposter syndrome that mm. you, you don't understand what the rule book is. You know, someone hasn't told you what the playbook is that you have to understand to succeed. But I think having been in the industry and, you know, in working environment for 30 years, I've actually come to the conclusion that's probably a strength mm. because it does give you that ability to look at things from a slightly different perspective. Mm. Well, apparently, I mean, Hugh Groven was apparently sent to a, a pretty rough school as a kid to school him in the other side of the tracks. So I was talking with someone the other day who was also at school with him. And I think, yeah. again, the smarter people generally deliberately will do that, won't they? Has that sense of knowing the narrative or needing to know the narrative, has that dissipated over the years? I mean, it must have done to a degree. You Why, know, it's, Why it's, must it's... it have done? There's no mandate. <laughs> because it would be too depressing if it hadn't. I mean, in truth, I think we've made progress, haven't we, on lots of things. But I think it's also been a little bit glacial. Mm. I still think there is a bit around knowing the rules of the game and if you don't know the rules of the game that can make you feel like an outsider and that can make it a little bit hard to progress mm. but don't, we don't we, you don't you think that uh, I, I think so i mean i've traded as an outsider for 20 years so i sort of tried to flip that on its head some degree myself yeah and as you know i think things that are personal barriers to me like not being able to see very well i just use that as an icebreaker with people mm -hmm. when i go into a room and my pupils are dilated because of an eye condition people think oh okay what's wrong with him? what's he drunk too much what's he taken and i've just used that as, as an icebreaker with people and that that cuts through and to some degree it's made me work harder and make me a better problem solver because my brain has to map places because i can't see very well but yeah. but often it's an inhibitor because i can't go shooting with people yeah. not that i would want to go shooting but i can't go shooting because i can't see what do you want I, to shoot well I, I, I can't i can't go but the sorts of networking things in property that could potentially win me business going shooting playing cricket i can't go and do those things because i can't see yeah so i have to find routes around those things so i mean let, let, look, i don't want to talk about me we're here to talk about you and, and your views so what do you think is missing so when you say things have moved at a, a bit of a glacial pace mm. we have a lot more female execs now there's mandates on gender pay there's reporting on gender pay yeah why do you say things are moving at a glacial pace? I think the progress that we're making is looking at things in a more comprehensive way when we're talking about diversity and inclusion. So if you, you know, rewind the tape to 10 years ago, you probably were only talking about gender then, weren't you? And then you have a whole series of events that are global or societal and bit by bit by bit, companies start looking at other areas and they, they're looking at them on an intersectional basis too. I think that, you know, the, the pandemic has shifted a bit in terms of how people interact with their employers and what they want from their employers. So if you look at some of the research now, companies are sort of trusted custodians within society in a way that they weren't five years ago hmm. and you then need to think well what does that mean what responsibilities do companies have now because they are in a position of trust and therefore they should be thinking about how they engage with their employees and their workforce to make sure they are thinking in a slightly more comprehensive inclusive way about all these different areas of ED&I that historically they weren't 
So what sorts of things then do they have to do or should they be doing? I think they should definitely be in listening mode. So I think that's a shift away from historically what a lot of companies have would be a very sort of command and control approach to you know, the executive telling the workforce what the direction of travel is. And I think it's important now for companies to be very, very alive to what the look and feel and temperature of the employees are. Mm. And I think there is also, you know, we need to recognise, I mean, we've had so many conversations about how things have changed generationally since we've been in real estate. But I think it's also really important to recognise that the next generation that are coming through, the generation that are my kids, will have profoundly different expectations of what they want and what they want to see and what they want to belong to. Hmm. But just picking up on your point, you're essentially saying that that we've been a bit too focused on gender and you say that as you know as a single well not as a single woman you're married with kids but uh, <laughs> as, as, as a as a woman from a single parent from a, I was gonna say as single, I grew up, from yeah. a single parent uh family do you think uh and sort of a loaded question but you think we need to focus more on social diversity on social mobility and, and how we look at at that I think there's lots of things. And just to pick you up on that point, Angie, I don't think we've been too focused on gender. I think gender was the first thing out of the blocks. Mm. And I think progress has been made around gender. Interesting to unpack why it was gender. You know, was it because mandates were set, targets were set for certain entities within our real estate ecosystem, one for debate? I think what I'm saying, it's a more nuanced area that we're looking at now and i do think socioeconomic diversity is really really important in all organizations particularly in real estate particularly in our sector because of our you know our track record in terms of the people that we recruited and where they came from and that type of thing but i think it's also really important to link up my point around the trust that society puts in companies and therefore the responsibilities that companies now have to both their people and society more broadly mm. is that you know the pandemic and other areas that you know preceded the pandemic were creating greater socioeconomic divides but you've got more digital poverty now you've got more health poverty now as a result of the pandemic and that all links back into the whole socioeconomic thread that we need to be weaving into EG&I policies across the piece. And I think real estate does have a real responsibility about that. Does it know it, though? I mean, it should be obvious to a business sector whose value is largely determined by planning applications, largely determined by the democratic process that happens in the community. So it goes without saying they've got a commercial imperative to give us stuff about the community and to engage with it. But there is a, it's a bit of a disjointment isn't there? I think companies can sometimes operate in silos and there's an element of cognitive dissonance about what might happen out in, you know, a team that's trying to get planning and what might happen within another part of the company where it's a team that's trying Mm. to recruit people. 
and you know it's, but that's because it, the planning episode is is treated purely as transactional it's okay well we give us stuff while we're doing this application we give us stuff so we can get this application and rather than thinking actually what's the right thing to do here should we be focusing on hiring and having a, a hiring strategy that's focusing on schools with free school meals yeah i, I mean i think you're right but i i still come back to my point that i think companies generally would all benefit irrespective of the sector and whether it's planning or not mm. of actually joining all the dots and just recognizing their position within their physical locality and the sort of role they play within society mm. to start closing that gap you know so one thing you can do irrespective of your size is to have that engagement piece isn't it around who you bring into your workforce and why you do it mm. I, I know you'll say there's more challenges for smaller companies but well, yeah. it, it is, and it, yeah. it, it's difficult. And I say, as, as a small business owner, it, it, it is difficult because you don't have access to all those same scale of opportunities that the hiring manager for Deloitte would have. You know, you think about big professional service firms that are hiring shed loads of graduates every year. Mm. It's right that they should be hiring a modest, at least modest number of people from different socioeconomic backgrounds with disability. Mm. And I think the challenge for some companies is they kind of like to do it, but don't necessarily know where to start. And I think there's, there's I, I don't think it's fair to say that everyone's evil and, and deliberately <laughs> uh, <laughs> deliberately uh, avoiding the problem. I, I think there are some people that don't give a stuff about the problem, but I think there are some people that would like to help, but that don't necessarily either have the scale or the skill set internally to do this. Because I think it's the problem is reputation. It's become such a minefield for people that they are afraid of doing or saying the wrong thing. Yeah, I can see that. And it's and actually coming back to your point around when you go into dark rooms or that type of thing. I mean, it's how do we start having a more fruitful conversation and who goes first on breaking that taboo? Yeah. You know, so is it the employee or is it the employer? How do we get collectively into a better place where mm. you do create environments where people do feel that any, you know, reasonable adjustments are being made mm. to their disability, that it's an environment where they feel they can flourish and thrive? You do have to kind of meet in the middle, don't you? Mm. Don't you think? Well, look, well, let's talk about that. I mean, so within your business context, what are some of the things that the Canary Wolf Group is doing in that side of the fence? So what sorts of adjustments would you make for individuals that have needs that go beyond a typical employee? Yeah, I think it's a combination of things. I mean, you do have to make very express interventions to start with because that's how you, you break the chain. So, for example, you know, we, we have one employee who is profoundly deaf. He is a really great role model in as much as he is very on the front foot about being profoundly deaf. But the adjustments that we make with him are a combination of him having signers. When we're having big meetings, we've got technology where he has someone that can sign for him into a phone to ensure that there's a sort of continuity of the dialogue. But from in terms of training piece, what we're having is the people that work around him are learning to sign too. You know, we can only do that because he's such a good role model and he wants other people to understand and to be educated in terms of what his disability is. So it, it just is integrated into our culture. Mm. We recently, actually on, on International Women's Day, we did a big um, event with schools from the local community in the London Borough of Tower Hamlets and he was on the panel and he was by far the most popular member of the panel because 
people could relate to the steps that he had had to take to get to where he was mm. in the organisation. And I know it sounds a bit cheesy, but role models are quite important. You do have to stand up sometimes to say, you know, which comes back to your point around gender. Yeah, but I think it? I think that stands for ethnicity, it stands for socioeconomic, it stands yeah. for space, it stands for gender, it stands for everything. Sexual orientation too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think that's something that the industry is getting better at. If you think about real estate, investment, real assets, and I think anything with fixed buildings, assets, it, you know, you've got yeah. to have that stake. If you're owning a building, yeah, yeah, a yeah. waterworks, a railway station, yeah. an airport, it, it doesn't really matter what it, it is. It's such a good point, you know, because one of the special things that, you know, we, we have dual responsibility, don't we? Because we have responsibility as being employers or founders, in your case, whatever it is, and how you create a culture in your own workforce to enable that to happen. But pretty much you might be at different points on the journey of but we are all in some way linked to the built asset and so you have the dual responsibility of how do we discharge our responsibilities to create built assets in which all people feel that they're comfortable and their adjustments are being made and it's included so Mm. you know in terms of the people the culture the customer experience yeah across canary wolf groups estate yeah you've got 1,200 directly employed people there, 1,500 if you include contractors, consultants, and a fast-rising footfall of workers and and leisure customers now thankfully coming back post-COVID. In terms of how you're looking to evolve that culture and think about diversity and inclusion within that environment mm. what are some of the things that you're looking to unpick and is it a bit easier in, you know, in a single and where you've got an estate that's under single ownership presumably it obviously gives you more control on stewardship yes in part i mean i think for me one of the things that i was struck by most when i joined canary wolf group is the sheer scale of the employees mm. it's also the diversity of the roles that they do you know so when you think about what the slightly different elements of the organizational design of Canary Wolf Group is you've got an integrated construction company, you know, you've got a bill to rent arm, you've got people that are in management, you know, that are landscape gardeners, that are securities, that type of thing. You've got people that are in the standard HQ of comms, you know, people in development, treasury, tax, all that sort of thing, legal. You know, so you, you've pretty much got almost every part of your real estate ecosystem within one organizational umbrella Mm. and i think that's quite unusual for real estate companies i don't know yeah lots of people talk about vertical integration but often it's sort of it's it's vertically integrated but we farm it out somewhere else whereas actually canary wolf has always been the epitome of that yeah which has been much of its success over the years so i think you know the, the challenges for me around the people bit and the edni bit are actually back to your point when you're talking about targets and mandates and that sort of thing. Because when you've got a company that is actually that diverse in terms of occupations and roles and that type of thing, you're not necessarily going to solve any of the problems with diversity if you're just setting very, very broad targets. Because what you really need to be doing is diving down into the detail because you're looking at about six or seven different companies and they're all going to have different challenges and opportunities and that sort of thing. And that's really, for me, where I'm looking to drive the change is to deal with people within 
the context of their own part of the company. Mm. And then on top of that, making sure that, you know, talking about before, to me, I think you ignore the next generation at your peril because of the next generation has a lot of wisdom mm. and there's a lot of confidence and there's a very, very different perspective that is incredibly valuable. And where you are the developer or investor of built assets that are as diversified as Canary Wharf is, it would be a really huge lost opportunity not to listen to and invest in in that next generation mm. because you know they are effectively your future customers. They are your stakeholders. So one of the things that I was very keen to set up from relatively early start at, at Canary Wharf Group was a junior board. It's also a really good opportunity to create glue because you can bring lots of people in from diverse parts of the organization and you get them mm. with different backgrounds, different lived experience, different skills to start thinking as a collective and working with them as a sounding board. And I think that's a very, very valuable proposition. And, and, that, and that's the value, isn't it? It's that diversity of life experience. Totally. That's what people forget. Really. Totally. Yeah. Again, it comes back to the point that I think sometimes we do tend to lose sight of, which is it's a lot about cognitive diversity. You know, you get great ideas when you marry up lots of different perspectives and, and lived experiences. You will have a very, very different view of a built environment because of your disability. Mm. You know, but other people... I'm good at remembering where steps are. That's what yeah. I'm very good at. It helps me as a problem solver. Yeah. But, but are you saying then that targets uh, you're not quite saying targets are a waste of time but no, you're saying I'm not that, saying targets are a waste so, of so, time. How, so what degree should targets be implemented in large or even medium small organizations i think that targets are one weapon in the armory around, and what should they be for we've talked a bit about gender we, we've talked a bit about disability of different forms neurodiversity as well yeah. and, and if you think about again thinking about some of the massive occupiers at canary wharf the banks the fintech businesses the advisory companies they're all the sorts of large companies that could easily support and employ and train people with neurodiversity yeah, skills it, and I mean, backgrounds let's unpack this a bit so you're talking about what's the benefit of targets and um, uh, yeah i'm talking about what's the benefit yeah. of targets and, and what should companies be doing because you're right that where you've got a landscape in business that's very different from, from the tax office and, and they, yeah. there are different sorts of people that they can support and actually what you're trying to achieve is balance isn't it you don't want to end up with a sort of box ticking exercise where you say well, we've got to have 30 percent there we've got to have 30 percent there but however just to pick up on and finish this point on targets when you look back in terms of what's the role of mandated change in real estate and to the extent that it really tags into the listed sector, for example. So when you look back and you think of what the Davis report did, what the Hampton Alexander report did, that mm. sort of thing, it's hard to deny that it didn't start shifting the dial. You know, and you did start getting that shift. So, you know, there was greater representation at board level. Now, I know the challenge that you're throwing out is, and what difference does that make? Because it doesn't necessarily achieve diversity of cognitive diversity. But I do think, and well, that's, that's one element. Yeah, I, th I think this, but I, I also do think that this issue about role models is really important. Mm. And when you talk to people from underrepresented minorities, the visibility of role models is important. So that's how targets and mandated targets at senior level 
is one of the weapons mm. in the armory. And actually, if we're talking about what else could you do, arguably, you know, if we're not making the progress that we should be making on something like disability, whether it's visible or invisible disability, maybe that's the direction of travel for that too. Mm. You know, that's where we go to at some point in the future. So you, you might have disability pay gap reporting. Mm. You might have disability mandates at a board level because... It comes back to my point around we've got to meet in the middle. You can't use it as a stick for forced disclosure, but you can use it as an engagement tool to start moving the debate forward. Hmm. And you can also use it as a measurement tool when it comes to things like social value creation. If you're supporting kids from different backgrounds and people that might not have had those opportunities, there's value being created there, right? Yeah. It's pretty straightforward. I and mean, that's yeah. as straightforward as it gets. I mean, yeah. Some of social value calculation some social value calculation it is a little bit mythical to be polite about it but things like this are pretty tangible really yeah i suppose the other pushback that you'll get from execs and certainly some people that i come across thankfully none of our clients but certainly people that i speak to would say well there's only so much we can do, Andy, because ultimately we can only employ the people that come out of schools and universities. And what could the sector do, whether it's the investment side, real estate, real assets, fund management, what can they be doing with schools? Because this point on role models, supporting people that perhaps haven't gone to university. Mm. You know, I don't have a degree. I'm the only person in my company that doesn't have a degree, I think. But, but uh, <laughs> hilariously, but the, the rules of business are employ people much smarter and better looking than you, which is what I've always tried to do. Good plan. But, um, yeah, easy to do. <laughs> uh, but, but that point on what should companies be doing, this is what I want to I hear. And you're, you've been involved with, with partners in property. Yeah, for, property. For yeah. Pathways to Property for, for a long time. I, uh, as listeners know, sit on the exec of the Urban Land Institute and I'm involved yeah. with charities like Urban Plan, which is a similar charity that goes into uh, schools and, and helps. But companies could be doing more of this stuff themselves, couldn't they? What, doing it independently or... I've worked with Pathways to Property, working with Urban Plan, yeah. doing these sorts of things. We've, we've talked about this a few times on this podcast, but I'm interested in what companies listening to this want to know is what can I do? Yeah, They want to know, right, fine, uh, setting a bunch of targets might not help, but what can actually help that this A, going to make a difference, B, going to make me look good to my shareholders, my partners, my investors, and C, going to engage my people? Those are the three questions, if we're honest, people want to know. What's in it for me? What's in it for the community? What's in it for my people? I think going back to answering the third question last in terms of what's in it for my people, I think that it is an expectation of what people want to see from companies now. Now, it might not be right across the piece and it might vary to a degree in terms of the margin of tolerance, but I think if you're going to be an employer of choice for that next generation, there is an expectation of this is what companies do full stop. So, you know, having very strong values around you know what your edni networks stand for what your social engagement strategy is you know that next generation just want to belong to those type of companies so that's the first point so you know in terms of what's in it for your people it's just an expectation it's almost a hygiene factor i think i think depending on size of the company i mean you're, you're absolutely right you know working with pathways to property or, or working with urban plan you know it creates results doesn't it Mm. You know, if you are a company that is limited in terms of resource or budget, then there's an awful lot you can still do by getting involved with those initiatives and that, you know, they're proven to have been successful. 
you know, I, I mean, Pathways is now chaired very, very ably by Paddy Allen, and I'm long since gone from Pathways. But you know, it it's has kind a of track operational record. residential real estate at Colliers yeah. now, Paddy. Yeah, great bloke. Um, you know, and and so the actual sort of outputs of that are measurable. Mm. So you you know that's definitely something you can do. But if you want to do something independently as a company, you can do a lot worse than early intervention in schools, you know, whether that's by talks, you know, whether that's by internships, open days, the whole thing. I mean, it's actually just that two-way awareness where people understand that are in this educational process what a career in real estate might look like. Mm -hmm. And as a business then, what does the future look like over the next few years for Canary Wolf? There's obviously been a huge amount of, of change and disruption over the previous two and a half years that the organization now appears to be coming back from really positively and there's a real renewed sense of confidence in everything around the business so how is the the culture how are you looking at, at stewarding that forward over the next 12 months so it's really exciting you know i mean i i think for me it's around how do you ensure that you're genuinely engaging your people mm. how do you make sure that you are recruiting from the right places you know how do you make sure that you, you're doing all the things that you and i've been talking about today you know i think when you have periods of great change and i think real estate as a entire sector is undergoing quite a lot of change and where you're undergoing change in terms of your strategy this huge opportunity to bring in different people you know and i think you know we've talked about this before is that there definitely has to be a place and an opportunity to bring people into our industry that are not from it. You know, mm. In the same way that I was talking about the benefits of having people who are real estate born and bred like myself, albeit they might be from a legal background to repurpose and, and wander around different aspects of real estate. It's got to be something that we focus on is bringing people into our industry from outside, don't you think? Mm. I agree. But who should be responsible for that? Is that something that that can't sit so surely at a single company level. It's not going to be Canary Wharf, Grove, and Lancet's no. responsibility to do that for everybody. No, I mean, obviously it can't be just one, one person. But I think that the agenda will be forced to a degree as we move into different sectors. You know, we talk about, you know, if you're moving into life sciences, you're moving into data, all of that sort of thing. We can't fish from the old pool, can we? Because well, no, that's that's no. not <laughs> that's not where that expertise lies. So mm. I th I almost think that the evolution of the the sectors that a lot of the real estate companies are moving into will force the hand of how we recruit. Mm. I think the other thing is is that as ESG starts to really take shape and some of the metrics force people to think in a different way i think that we will start seeing the benefits of the socioeconomic piece that we were talking about as mm. part of that social value and also egni stuff will possibly morph in as a subset of esg so it will be t you know that maybe mm. that pace of change well, will it already has. i, I don't yeah. it already has I, I think if you look at pure sustainability aspects regulation has played a huge role in moving stuff forward if you think mm. about I mean, as limited mm. as epcs are the fact that the uk government and, and under the european rules the Europe, uh, energy performance in buildings are right all of these pieces of legislation mandated 
that buildings below a threshold of energy performance couldn't be traded. So whilst EPCs might have been a relatively blunt tool, they affected change. And, and I think you're right that that could become a template for how yeah. uh, how we look at other things. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing that is going to force the hand a bit of real estate is an acknowledgement that we have to become customer-centric. Mm. And, you know, in the same way that I'm very keen that real estate becomes people-centric, I think the customer-centric aspect of it needs to have more of a focus and more of a priority. And I think when we put customers genuinely at the heart of your interactions and the opportunities and what you provide for them, then again, it comes back to my point. I think we will be looking to bring more people from outside our industry. Mm. Um, Canary Wharf is a great microcosm of that, isn't it? With, with, with a huge amount of rented housing now that it didn't have 10 years ago, lots of co-working that it didn't have 10 years ago, an emerging life sciences hub that's now going to be created and all Schools. of these sorts of things. Yeah, educational uh, institutes. Uh, yeah, yeah, partnerships with yeah. academics as well. Another totally different outlook and, and structure than the historic 20-year mm. lease with a bank. But I think, isn't that the evolution of real estate? Well, so we have to continually yeah, reinvent, yeah. don't we? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So look, we'll have to get Paddy Allen on here. We'll have to get a broader debate on some of these issues, Jane. Yeah, and, that'd and, be good. And, and we'd love to hear, we love life sciences on this podcast, as listeners know. So we'd love to hear more about your future path with Kadan. So that sounds tremendously exciting. But we'll leave it there for now. Thank you so much to Jane Hollingshead, Managing Director for People Culture and Customer Experience, not CPO, as we established right at the start. <laughs> but thank you nonetheless to Jane for coming on. Fantastic conversation. As ever, you can subscribe to PropCast by searching PropCast on Spotify, which you seem to love over Apple. But you can look on Apple, you can look on SoundCloud. You can obviously still keep checking propertyweek.com for the latest news analysis. I've been Andrew Teacher. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon.